In this episode, we speak with Jeff Crisan, who co-founded Silversmith Capital Partners in 2015. In his role as a managing partner, Jeff focuses on investments in healthcare IT and services. Silversmith Capital Partners is a Boston-based growth equity firm focused on partnering with and supporting the best entrepreneurs in growing technology and healthcare companies. Since its founding in 2015, the firm has raised four funds and has $3.3 billion of capital under management. With more than 20 years investing experience, Jeff has led many of the firm's key healthcare investments, including Iodine Health, Lifestance Health, Mediquant, Nordic, Penalgo, Partner Surgical, Sound Physicians, Upper Line Health, U.S. Health Partners, and Within Three. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you. Would love to kick off with kind of the early days. You co-founded the firm in 2015. When you started the firm back then, did you kind of have a unique vision in mind? Did you want to do something different? I'm just curious about those. the early start to the firm. The early start had a, a bunch of elements that really came together in a special way. First and foremost is anything you want to do and do seriously for the amount of time we commit into investing is to do it with great people. So I don't think I would have ever had the guts to leave my former firm if I didn't have a wonderful co-founders. So Todd, Lori, and Jim, the four of us founded the firm together. And Todd and I have known each other since college. Yeah. All four of us have basically known each other for, you know, for 20 plus years and have been longtime, longtime friends. But starting a firm with your friends has its risks. So you better have some shared alignment and sense of purpose. And what all of us really saw in the growth equity market is a number of firms that had been quite successful had grown outside of their original focus, which is growth investments in tech and healthcare and tens of $50 million revenue businesses into much bigger investment firms. And so we wanted to build a firm that's really focused yeah, first and foremost, on the, the founder, on the bootstrapped visionary that found product market fit, and how do you help that person and that team you know, scale their business? We found that sweet spot is companies that have achieved at least 10 of revenue. They're usually less than 50. They are growing great. They're in the two sectors that, that all of the partners here know, which is tech and healthcare, and just build a firm that's kind of maniacally focused on helping those people succeed as much as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. And when I think about growth equity firms, I think there's kind of two components to it. There's like the actual deal sourcing, identification, sourcing, execution. But then there's also the internal business of building a firm and, and establishing a culture. And uh, it seems you've been able to do that well and attract the right talent. Can you tell us a little bit about the culture that you've you know, purposely established at Silversmith? Yeah, we, we try to put our values yeah, first and upfront on our website, but the real focus of the firm is, is to have a firm built on teamwork. We want people who really want to win, uh, but we want people who want to win as a team. And so we did a bunch of things early on. You know, the, 
the partner group is a is a flat partnership. The managing partners are all equal. We organize our our hiring so that with a compensation model that really rewards a long-term perspective, you know, carry down to reasonably low levels. You know, we de-emphasize bonuses because we think that motivates short-term behavior and not long-term behavior. We, like many growth equity firms, you have a bottoms-up approach to sourcing, but we reward our whole team whenever an investment is sourced by anyone on the team, as opposed to focusing on the individual. So the whole genesis and the whole culture of Silversmith is around the team. And it's also around you having a spirit where anyone where they join in the organization has the potential to at some point become a managing partner in their career. So the goal here is to have a career path from someone right out of school to someone joining post-business school to someone lateraling in where there's a partner path for all the investment professionals. Mm-hmm. And your firm has been particularly good at recognizing, you know, individuals as well as collectively the firm. You know, how do you institute that on an ongoing basis? I've seen instances where firms, they, they may have suffered from some attrition. People leave, people, you know, go off and, and do their own thing. Sometimes there's, you know, internal conflict. How do you manage through all that? I think all firms, as they grow, it's like all companies that grow, is a little bit of whack-a-mole. Once you have one challenge and you feel like you addressed it, there's another one. There's another one that pops up. But when it comes to people, that I think one is our focus on AUM is steady organic growth. The purpose of that is to create partnership opportunities for people as they progress in their careers. We, while we bring some people in laterally at the vice president level. Our goal is not to hire in partners laterally. And the purpose of that is a lot of that conflict can come from not having a long shared history. So Todd, Jim, Laurie, and I had the benefit of 20 years of shared history. We'd like the to have people that are rising through the ranks to have a long shared history together and not be, oh, we've raised a fund. It's 3x our last fund. We have to hire people from the outside and think through what the cultural implications of that, that are. So that's a that's a big core to how we think about team building and retention. We also try to stay as a partner group pretty intimately involved. So we interview everyone. Yeah, the partner group will interview everyone down to first-year analysts coming out of school. So we, we don't want to abdicate the role as our firm grows of the really hand-selecting the people that are going to be on our team. This is our brand that is out in the world and our analyst associates, senior associates, vice president are all representing that. And it's important for our partner group you know, to be you know, really in the weeds and helping select you know, and work with the right people and mentor them along the way. I think you know, this is really a mentorship business. In fact, part of the reason we picked the name Silversmith is a silversmith is really usually a mentor that has a number of apprentices that become a master craftsman over time. And that's really you know, how we think about the firm is how do we bring in really talented people and how do we make sure we have the right mentorship and support so that they can ultimately be uh, be partners uh, here as well. Mm-hmm. And now switching over to the entrepreneur side, you know, I noticed you do have a success rate, a good, good amount of success rate in partnering with the right entrepreneurs. Do you have kind of a set criteria or maybe it's just ingrained in your mind now after so many years of investing? Are there things that you see in an entrepreneur and almost immediately know this is a good person to partner with? Immediately, 
No, because it does take it take time. And it's a big part of our approach is to get to know entrepreneurs, not over days and weeks, but over months and years to really understand what makes them tick. Because if we scroll back to our, our whole mission is to focus on investing in bootstrapped entrepreneurs. And those bootstrapped entrepreneurs, we need to make sure they have a real growth mindset because our hope and belief is that the entrepreneurs we partner with will be with the firms and be leaders of their firms, not just through our investment period, but hopefully future firms investment period as well. And so really getting a perspective that the entrepreneur is a active learner, is engaged in growth. And it can be, yeah, not that everyone's going to be Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Larry Ellison, but the most successful firms are often built by firms where the entrepreneur and the original founder was really able to scale with the business. And so we spent a lot of time you know, trying to trying to look at that. I think you would find some common commonality across our portfolio. The first I mentioned is that is that growth mindset. Yeah, you know, they have to have a, a sense of purpose. They have to have empathy for people. They need to have perseverance and patience on one hand, but a sense of urgency on the other. And they have to be adaptable because the world is is consistently changing. And really understanding who has those criteria is, isn't something that just pops out of, oh, I could tell over dinner. I wish I could. But usually as we get to know entrepreneurs over time, you know, we can gravitate and identify who those are. And the beauty of our focus on the bootstrapped entrepreneurs is they're usually pretty wary of investors. So they don't want to go from dating to marriage in two weeks either. So, so we do have the opportunity to get to know, to know them over an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to jump into value creation and how you know many firms in the growth equity space are able to assist the companies they invest in, and they each do it in their own particular way. How does Silversmith, and, and maybe it depends on the situation, but you know maybe you could tell us about an example of a, a company that you worked with and it was, you know, maybe there's challenges along the way, it was, but it was a good working relationship and you ultimately really helped the company succeed. Right. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. And, and first, coming back to that we are focused on the, the bootstrapped entrepreneur, we want to help them where they want help. And we spend a lot of time trying to make sure we're aligned on that early on because they may have blind spots but if they are not aware and thinking about how to address their blind spots, that could be a, a recipe for, for conflict down the line. But where do we usually add value and how do we do it? I'll, I'll use an example of a portfolio company that's uh, Iodine Software out of Austin, Texas. And Iodine, two exceptional entrepreneurs led the business, Michael Cadian and, and William Chan. Alongside our investment, William Chan stepped up into to the CEO role as Mike moved to the board. And business had proven product market fit, you know, 20 plus million in revenue, profitable, great growth profile. But like many of our businesses, there's a lot of building that needs to be done. I read somewhere that when you get somewhere between 80 and 100 employees, that most leaders realize that they can't know what everyone is doing every single day. So people draw org designs for 50-person companies. They're not really necessary because you, know, you can know what everyone is doing every day. So what actually is the point? 
But when you get to 80 or 100, you do need to have real structure and process. It also is a time where the leaders really need to engage in hiring the C-suite around them. So at iodine in our, our first year of investing was recruiting a, a chief growth officer, a head of customer experience, chief financial officer, two or three other uh, senior executives really to help you know, support William and help William scale. So the first element is team building and spending a lot of time building the layer that will help make the founder more successful. Yeah, our goal is for the founders we back to again, to, to run the full race with us. And we try to think through what are all the ways we can help maximize the probability of that happening. The second is often some pretty you know, blocking and tackling basic infrastructure, which is financial reporting, data, analytics. Many of the companies we invest do not have budgets. They run on cash financials. They haven't thought through their, their sales pipeline and how to forecast. We help them in those areas. And once we've accomplished those kind of two kind of key goals, infrastructure and having the core team in place. That's when we hope we can shift how we add value from making sure that the chassis is ready to scale uh, to how do you expand the chassis. So we'll spend a lot of time at IADA and we help them do uh, two add-on acquisitions to expand the product portfolio. And then we often engage not so much in the product itself, the founder's own product market fit, but really thinking longer term about product strategy and product portfolio. Because as you scale from 10 to 30 to 50 to 100 to hundreds of millions in revenue, yeah, that product portfolio often needs to go from a single product that solves a certain niche for a customer in an exceptional way to a product suite, which is done both through organic build and potentially through M&A. And we orient there. Again, all of this is is with a very you know, kind of growth-oriented approach, as well as a balanced view of growth and profitability. Most of our companies you know, maintain and grow profitability as we go, though our average growth rate is you know, kind of well north of 40% across the portfolio. Now, as you were describing kind of that entrepreneurial path, I was thinking, you know, in a, in a sense, you and your co-founders are entrepreneurs as well in building your firm. Have you you know, had those situations where you feel like you're getting to the next phase of, of your firm and you're expanding and so you have to rethink about how things are set up? Yeah, for sure. I think that happens every year or two. You know, when we first started, we were in a little WeWork and four of us you know, were in the same office. It may have been 150 square feet and had little elementary school desks in it. We knew what everyone was thinking. We frankly probably knew what they had for breakfast. As we expanded out of that into our first office, it was putting in all of the the core infrastructure for a you know, 15 or so person firm. But still at that point, we could do everything together. We could do all staffing decisions together. We could make all investment decisions together. Yeah, now we're we're north of 30 people. And you start to spend time as we hit this chapter is thinking, you know, what is the critical things that should be consensus? So our partners and our whole team meet, meet weekly. Our investment committee meetings are the whole firm. Everyone in our firm votes on investments. That consensus approach has served us well. We want to keep that as we scale. But some things scale less less well as, you're, as we approach you know, 30 plus people. So we're 
we're more organized now into sector and subsector teams so we can balance things we want consensus while also being able to provide the mentorship we want to the younger associates, senior associates, vice presidents on a more one-on-one basis. And so that's been the shift in the last year is, is really from general pools to really you know, sector and subsector teams. And I'm sure we'll have new challenges two years from now. I think all, all firms have the, have these. And if you're not constantly thinking about how to improve, you're probably getting worse. So yeah, we try to have a consistent mindset of how do, how do we get better. Well, we're coming up on time. I typically like to end with with a couple questions. But before I ask the last two questions, where do you see Silversmith, you know, three or five or 10 years from now? I mean, you can pick which horizon you'd, you'd like to talk about, but where, where do you see the firm heading? It's a good question. And first, our, our partner group, hopefully, is a consensus-driven partner group. And so we'll make those decisions as we go as a group. And that's the first and foremost. But I do think we have very small market share in in backing talented founders in technology and healthcare in companies that are at the inflection point of their growth. So our hope is that we can do whatever we can as a firm to make those entrepreneurs more and more successful. And as long as we stick to our, our knitting, that tech and healthcare, 10 million and up, high growth, profitable businesses backed by you know, great people, I think the runway is long and you know, we'll continue to try to do that in a, in a steady, organic, you know, team-building you know, partnership approach. Excellent. Okay, last two questions. And this veers more towards the, the personal. Can you tell us about a book that you've read that has had a profound impact on you? Yeah, th- quick background. I have an 18-year-old son who's an avid reader who probably reads six books at any one time. He's the only person I know that doesn't read one book at a time, but reads you know, six books at a time. So I always, when I finish a book, which I read about one to every six he reads, I ask Nate, what's the next book that that I should read? So about uh, six months ago, he said, you should, you should read, it's called a, a Genius and All of Us by David Shank. And what I loved about this book is that book, yeah, there's this an endless debate of nature and nurture. And this book is about really that question. Is it genetics that helps the most successful people be successful? Or is it hard work that makes that makes people really excel? And I found it profound because the the core concept is in and you think about genetics, we think about it wrong. We think about it as a collective set of attributes. Do you have blue eyes? Do you have blonde hair? When reality, that might be accurate for physical characteristics, but when you talk about behavioral characteristics, you know, will you be a talented musician or will you be you know, a Ted Williams batter? It is your genes have a set of capabilities and it has a set of on-off switches. How you live your life and how you spend your time will turn those on-off switches on or off. And actually, there's reasonable data that says if you turn those switches on, those on switches are more likely to be turned on for future generations as well. And so why I found this so profound is it comes to, yes, we all have innate capabilities from our genetics, but almost every exceptional person is a has persevered, spent thousands of hours focused on what makes them great, and that we all can do that. That's all in our control. And if we are all doing that, we will turn switches on that will make the odds higher that our kids will also 
perform better. And so most times when people talk about nature versus nurture, they think of it as a comparison. And this is really that the two are intertwined. It's also a reasonably quick read because he, while he does a lot of nerdy science conversation, he also throws in lots of anecdotes uh, to make it a bit of storytelling as well. That's a wonderful answer and, you know, quite an uh, uplifting or encouraging book for, for all the, the readers out there. Switching over to the last question, can you tell us about a leader that you particularly ad- admire, could be across any domain? I've given this a lot of thought. And I think the biggest challenge in today's world is we used to paint our leaders with broad, positive brushes. Now we take very close pictures to highlight all of their their warts and all of their negative idiosyncrasies. So it's very hard for me to you know, to pick out any you know, any leader at this moment in time and say this person I admire because we're all flawed. But I, yeah, you know, just generally feel feel blessed and fortunate that leaders come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. I get the opportunity to work with with many of them. Some are introverted scientists, some are extroverted sales leaders. But the world is filled with high quality, high ethic people that have a sense of purpose and mission and. I wish I could point one because, but everyone, you know, myself and included, is also filled with flaws. But I've been fortunate that I can call one and have the opportunity to work with many. Got it. So it's, it's a cop out, I know, but yeah, in this there's world, an answer in there. It, it's hard. It's it's hard to pick out one. I'll type their name in Google and find something negative about them. It'll disappoint me. Right. Right. Well, Jeff, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you again. I know our audience will find this very insightful. RJ, real pleasure. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. 